Good morning. Last Sunday, Pastor Chris finished the series on the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And today, this morning, we're starting a, a new series. We're staying in the New Testament, but starting a new eight-week series uh, going through the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by a man named Paul to the Christians in a city called Colossae. Uh, Paul was an apostle, which means that he had seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection and was called by him, called by Jesus, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Paul took the gospel beyond the borders of Israel, and he told the nations about Jesus. Uh, starting around A.D. 52, which was when he began his third missionary journey, he spent at least two years in a city called Ephesus. And while he was there, he served in such a way that it could be said in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, it's likely that one of these folks who heard and received the word of the Lord at that time was a man named Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras was a native of Colossae, and it's likely that he became a Christian in Ephesus under Paul's ministry and then took the good news of the gospel back to his hometown. And that's how the church started there. Epaphras may have also begun churches in a couple of other cities nearby, uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, sometime after this, sometime after the church began in Colossae, Epaphras went back to see Paul, who was possibly in prison in Rome at that time. Uh, if that was Paul's location, this would have been somewhere around A.D. 61. And Epaphras gave Paul a largely good report about the Christians at Colossae, as we'll see this morning, but it seems that he also shared some concerning news about false teaching that was confronting the church. And that's what's prompted Paul to write this letter that we're going to be studying, that we're going to unpack over the next several weeks. An important question to ask here is, what was the nature of the false teaching? Commentators have spilt a lot of ink on that subject, and at the end of the day, uh, it seems like we just don't know. Uh, you, we, we don't know for sure. There's not enough information. The best we can do is just go off of the information Paul gives us in this letter. Uh, now, we'll look into that false teaching more when we get into chapter 2 of Colossians, but for now, I'll try to summarize it like this. It seems that the Colossians may have been facing a type of syncretistic faith where different elements of more than one belief, belief system are, are, are combined or fused together. Uh, here in this situation, that could have been Judaism, uh, an early form of Gnosticism that promoted like a secret knowledge or even mystical elements of local folk religions. And it's possible that the Christians at Colossae had someone in their midst who was telling them that they had an incomplete faith, that in order to experience true fullness, 
in order to really know God and be close to him and pleasing to him and possibly even avoid and be protected from evil beings, they needed to do extra things like observe Old Testament dietary laws and holidays, like practice asceticism, deprive themselves of certain things in order to draw closer to God, uh, like either worship angels or, or strive to arrive at the spiritual plane where they worship God alongside or with angels. These things, it, it may have been said, were necessary for the Colossians to adopt as they progress in their faith, if they want to progress in their faith and complete it. Paul wants to correct that. He wants to point the Colossians to Christ. He wants to remind them that they have received the real thing, that they are the real thing, that they don't need anything else to add to their faith, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, God made flesh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the dead, the Lord of creation, Lord of the church, victor over evil spiritual forces, the fullness of God, this Jesus Christ, he wants them to know that Jesus is all they need. To know God, to be at peace with him, to have true fullness, one only needs Jesus. We don't need Jesus plus anything else. Others have pointed this out, but this is the mathematics of the gospel. If you try to add anything to Jesus, you end up with nothing. But if you take Jesus and all that he gives, you end up with everything. As, as Eric Raymond puts it, we must see that fastening your grip upon other things is a loosening of our grip on Jesus, upon Jesus. So that's why the title of this series is Christ Over All. Now by that, I mean two things. One, Jesus is supreme. He is king over all. All things were created through him and for him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is above all earthly powers and by God's grace, he rules over us. He's not just king, but he is our king. He's your king, he's my king. And that means that he calls the shots. We must bring our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us into greater and greater conformity to his will. So Jesus is supreme, but also Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is over and above all supposed means to advance us in our faith and bring us near to God. Jesus is enough. He's all we need. Adding anything to him takes away from him. If we want to know God, if we want to be at peace with God, if we want to grow in our obedience to God, all we need is Jesus. So we need to hear, I think, from the Lord in Paul's letter to the Colossians. We can be pr so prone to a similar kind of error ourselves, can't we? 
thinking that if we do certain things, check off certain boxes on our religious uh, to-do list, that we will be somehow uh, more and more in God's good graces. Not that obedience is not important, but if we think of our obedience as, as somehow adding to our faith, adding to the gospel that we have received, we're going down a dangerous path. Christ is supreme. Christ is all we need. And so as we go through Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about what it means to follow him. And so I hope that you are excited for this series, and I pray that uh, we'll all be blessed by it. Now, this morning, we're beginning with Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8. In these verses, uh, we're going to see a number of things, but a key point that I hope to emphasize is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful, and it bears fruit in all those who receive it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful, and it bears fruit in all those who receive it. We'll see that as we work through this text, and we'll also see why this could have been timely for the Colossians to hear. As we work through the passage, we'll do so in four points. Uh, one, the author and audience. Two, faith, love, and hope. Three, the word of truth. And four, the messenger. So let's dive in with point one, the author and the audience. Uh, this is Colossians 1, verses 1 to 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So as we've said, Paul is the author of this letter, and here he identifies himself as such. Uh, but notice how he does it. He describes himself as an apostle of, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul wasn't always an apostle. He wasn't always a Christian either. He used to be a devout Jew, so devout that he describes himself this way in Philippians 3, 5 to 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then in the next verse, in Philippians 3, 7, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What happened to this man? What changed? Well, he met Jesus, or, or rather Jesus met him still a persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus saved him, opened his eyes to the truth, and called him to, in the words of Acts 9.15, carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was an apostle. He had seen Jesus after his resurrection and had been called by him to proclaim the good news. And this was not his own doing. It was the will of God. Now, we'll come back to this in a bit, but for now, think about why this could have been important to emphasize at the beginning of this letter. Paul's writing to Christians who are being challenged by false teaching. And here at the outset, his introduction makes things plain. He didn't start the church 
in Colossae. In fact, he may not have even met these people before. Um, but as an apostle of Christ, Christ here being a title, meaning Messiah, the, the long-awaited king from the line of David, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Paul speaks into this situation. And what he's about to say is authoritative. Those who hear and read his letter should receive what he writes, uh, along with some sense, uh, Timothy, who was a co-laborer with Paul and may have even written down this letter as Paul said it out loud. And I think it's important that we stop here at the beginning and, and hear this. When we read this letter, in fact, when we read any one of the 66 books of the Bible, we are reading an authoritative word from God. In this case, in Colossians, one written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That means that we, like the Colossians, must receive it. We must believe it. We must follow it. Now, when Paul addresses the Colossians, he calls them saints, which refers not to their good deeds, but to their status as holy or set apart before God. And he also calls them faithful brothers. Uh, more accurately here, I think uh, it's brothers and sisters. They're faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Evidently, these Christians have not adopted the false teaching that Paul's confronting. How could he call them faithful if they had? But that said, it's possible that in calling them faithful, he's issuing a reminder here to them to remain faithful to Jesus. But the truth remains, these saints are in Christ. Listen to Douglas Moo explain what that means. He says, to be in Christ is to belong to him as the originator and ruler of the new age of redemption that his death and resurrection inaugurated. In Christ is Paul's way of saying that believers are now located in a new place, the kingdom of God's son. That carries with it a total reorientation of one's existence. So they are in Christ, but notice what else Paul says. At Colossae, I suppose we could call this the geography of the gospel. For those who are following Jesus, we are in Christ. That's what's most true about us. Our location has changed in the most fundamental sense. At the same time, we are also physically located where God has placed us. And while there, we are called, uh, in the words of our church's purpose statement, to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Uh, a pastor named Sam Storms points this out in a blog post he wrote on the subject. And in that post, he includes a great quote from uh, a man named Bishop Hanley Mool that summarizes what this would have looked like for the Christians at Colossae. He says, they moved about Colossae in Christ. They worked served, kept the house, followed the business, met the neighbors, entered into their sorrows and joys, suffered their abuse and insults which, when such things came, all in Christ. They carried about with them a private atmosphere which was not of Asia, but of heaven. To them, Christ was their inner home, the dear, invisible, but real resting place. And what a rich gain for poor Colossae that they, being in him, 
were in it. May that be true of us. May Christ be our invisible but real resting place. And may it be a rich gain for the city of Wilmington or wherever you are, wherever God has placed you. May it be a rich gain for the people around us that we, being in Christ, are there. Now, before moving on to our next point, uh, lastly, notice how Paul ends this introductory section. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace refers to God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. Apart from any works of our own, God, by grace through faith in Jesus, has saved us and brought us into his family as his children, as his sons and daughters. And he continues showing us grace day by day, sustaining us by the power of his spirit and making us more like Christ. Paul's desire is that the Christians at Colossae continue to experience that grace from their father. And as the ESV ESV study Bible explains, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but echoes the Old Testament concept of shalom, where a person's life with God and with everything else is is in ordered harmony, both physically and spiritually, and all is well. Like he does with grace, Paul desires the Colossians to experience more of that peace from God our Father. It's possible that Paul even intends this letter uh, as a means um, by which God would extend that grace and peace to the Colossians. Others have pointed that out. Um, And if if that's the case, um, may it be so for us as we work through this letter in the coming weeks. As we go through Colossians, may God extend to us his peace. May he work in us powerfully by his spirit to make us more like Jesus. Um, may he show us his grace. May he show us and extend to us his peace. So the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians, to the saints, to the faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae. And the first thing he does right out of the gate is express his thanks to God for what he is doing in and through them. And that brings us now to our second point, faith, love, and hope. Paul begins by saying in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then in verses 4 and 5, he explains why. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. The Christians at Colossae are displaying all three. Paul's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. They have believed and embraced the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, and offers forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and eternal life to all those who turn away from their sin and trust Jesus to save them. By God's grace, they have trusted Jesus and are following him. He's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, but he's also heard about the love they have for all the saints. 
having turned from their sin and embraced Jesus, they now possess and are displaying the supernatural God-given love for all Christians that God gives his people. And what is motivating this faith and this love? Paul says it in verse five. It's the hope laid up for them in heaven. That's what's motivating the faith and the love. The, and, the, and the hope Paul mentions here, it's not wishful thinking in the way that we sometimes think about hope, but as one commentator, uh, Dick Lucas puts it, quote, it is that confidence, assurance, and expectancy of the vaster blessings in store for believers in the life of the world to come. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. These verses, I think, tell us that if we are truly heavenly minded, if someone is truly in the right sense, heavenly minded, it's just not even possible that you would be no earthly good. Paul's saying that it's precisely because the Colossians are heavenly minded, it's precisely because they are looking forward to what's certainly to come, eternal life with Jesus and all the saints in a kingdom where there is no crying, there's no pain, there's no death, there is no sin, there is no injustice of any kind, it's because of that. It's because of what is coming to them in the future that they are continuing to trust Jesus and display love for all his people. John Piper says it like this. Only one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven, doing the works of heaven. And heaven is a world of love. It is not the cords of heaven that bind the hands of love, it is the love of money and leisure and comfort and praise. These are the cords that bind the hands of love. And the power to sever these cords is Christian hope. I say it again with all the conviction that lies within me. It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love on this earth. It is worldly mindedness. And therefore the great fountain of love is the powerful freeing confidence of Christian hope. So that said, I think one application for us here is to follow Peter's command. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need that. I need that. And when we do that, when we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus returns, we won't be disengaged. We won't be unfruitful. We won't be unloving in the present. It's actually the opposite. We will be empowered to keep on trusting Jesus, to keep on following him no matter what comes our way, to keep on loving others no matter the cost, to spend ourselves, even lay down our lives for the sake of other people. Now, let's stop here and, and return to the big picture uh, around this text. Paul's thanking God for the Colossians' faith 
and love, which are being empowered by the hope laid up for them in heaven. Notice two things about this. First, he's thanking God, not the Colossians. And why is that? It's because neither their faith nor their love originate in them. Both are gifts from God. Faith is a gift. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, which includes the faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. Love for the saints is also a gift. Later in this text that we're going through this morning in verse eight of Colossians one, Paul says that Epaphras, the man who initially took the gospel to Colossae, told him about the Colossians' love in the spirit, which could mean the love that they have that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Even the love that we have for one another as believers in Christ is a gift from God. It's not of our own doing. And second, think about why this word from Paul here could have been encouraging for the Colossians to hear. Remember that they are possibly, possibly being confronted by false teaching that claims their faith is incomplete that claims they need to do extra things like observe Old Testament dietary laws and holidays and practice asceticism, depriving themselves of things in order to experience true fullness, to really know God and be close to him and pleasing to him and possibly even to avoid and be protected from evil beings. But what does Paul's thanksgiving here communicate? It says that by their faith and love, which are motivated by the sure guaranteed hope laid up for them in heaven, these things bear witness to the fact that they are Christians, that they are the real thing. As Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Colossians are displaying this and Paul is thanking God for it and pointing it out. Dick, Dick Lucas, he mentions this in his commentary uh, on this passage and he says, faith, hope, and love make up the familiar triad in Paul's writings. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 and 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. We might almost call them apostolic shorthand. When Paul combines these three elements of Christian spirituality, as in this context, it is usually to provide a basic and sufficient description of the genuine Christian. These three qualities are the hallmarks and proper evidences of a work of God in the soul of a man. So, Paul thanks God for his work in the saints at Colossae and in the process potentially provides intentional encouragement to those brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that is instructive for us. May we be quick to see how God is at work in our brothers and sisters. May we be quick to tell them about what we are seeing or hearing in them. And most importantly, may we be quick to thank God for what we are seeing or hearing in them that is bearing witness to their genuine faith and love. This brings God glory for doing the things that only he can do, only the things that he is capable of, 
and it brings our brothers and sisters encouragement as we seek to keep our eyes on Jesus. And along those lines, uh, allow me to just mention, we are in a, a, a unique, hard season right now, aren't we? In the midst of a pandemic where the world is virtually shut down and uh, some of us um, have people in our, in our families or circle of friends or relationships who have even passed away from this, from this illness. This is a, this is an relatively, for us, it's an unprecedented uh, time, a time that can um, lead to a lot of discouragement and pain and, and loss and rightful lamentation. And in the midst of this season, I just want to, to encourage uh, you, my brothers and sisters of Bethel here, uh, I am thankful for your love and devotion to Jesus, for your love and devotion to his word and to his people. This situation right now, what we are experiencing right this second, is not ideal. Like, I am standing in an auditorium with, looks like, four other people, and it is empty. That's not the way this is meant to be. But if you're watching this, you are showing devotion to your brothers and sisters in Christ, the devotion to the word being preached. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for how you've continued to participate, not just in these live stream services, but in the, the virtual gathering of community groups and prayer meetings and Bible studies. I'm thankful for how you've cared for each other during this time through prayers and phone calls and texts and meals for the care team that, is, that has done so much for the, for the brothers and sisters in our church family. Uh, thanks be to God for, for you all. Um, for, for how God is at work in this congregation. So I'm encouraged by that, and I, and I hope that you are as well. Now, next, Paul moves on in our text uh, to more specifically discuss the source of the hope that he mentioned in verse 5. And that brings us now to our third point, the word of truth. Starting in verse 5, um, uh, about halfway through, Paul says this, Of this, of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here, the encouragement from Paul continues. Uh, I want to point out three things about what he says. First, in verse 5, he emphasizes that the Colossians heard the word of truth, the gospel. And in verse 6, he says that they understood the grace of God in truth. Remember again that the Colossians' faith is being challenged by false teaching. How comforting, how comforting would it be then to hear the apostle emphasize that they heard the word of truth, that they understood the grace of God in truth. Maybe we need to hear that too this morning. In a world where objective truth is challenged, we need to be uh, reminded and we need to communicate that the gospel is the word of truth. God the Son really did take on flesh. He really was fully God and fully man. 
He really did live a life of perfect obedience to God, never sinning in thought, word, or deed. He really did die a sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of everyone who would trust him. He really did rise from the dead in victory three days later. He really is ruling and reigning in heaven right now, awaiting the day when he will return to judge the world and dwell with his people forever and ever. And guess what else? God really will forgive and declare as righteous everyone who turns away from their sin, comes to him with the empty hands of faith and trusts Jesus to save. If, if that is you this morning, uh, if, if you aren't trusting and following Jesus, I pray that you would. I pray that you would turn away from your sins and trust him to save you and receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace. Receive those things that he gives, that you would receive Jesus. If, if you're wrestling with that this morning, if you are wondering maybe what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to follow Jesus, if you have questions about Christianity, I would love to talk to you. Uh, feel free to, to send us a message on Facebook if that's how you're watching this morning or if you're watching through some other means. Uh, feel free to use the contact information on our website and, um, and reach out to us and I would be glad to follow up with you. All right, so Paul emphasizes first that the Colossians heard the word of truth. They understood the grace of God and truth. And second, he points out that the word of truth they heard, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing among them. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Colossians are evidence of this. They heard the gospel from Epaphras. They embraced it. They were saved the gospel through the Holy Spirit's power produced fruit in the Christians at Colossae. It produced fruit in that city as the men and women heard the word of truth and trusted Jesus. And the gospel continues, as Paul says, to increase among them. By it, they have been changed and are continuing to be changed. They're continuing to grow in their faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints, which are motivated by the hope laid up for them in heaven. As Christopher Beetham points out, the gospel, by the enabling power of the Spirit, creates communities marked by the fruit of faith, hope, and love. The gospel is not merely a message about forgiveness. It recreates people to be all that God originally intended them to be. That's what God is doing among the Christians at Colossae. That's what he's doing among, among us, those of us who are trusting Jesus. He is recreating us. And third here, Paul points out that the word of truth the Colossians heard, the gospel, it's not just bearing fruit and increasing in them, in the Colossians, but it's doing so in the whole world. What the Colossians are experiencing is not isolated to them, which is another thing that Paul says that I think could have, could have comforted the Colossians in this situation. The gospel they've received is the real thing and nothing else needs to be added to it. How do they know? Well, 
One way is through the Holy Spirit's work, it is producing the fruits of faith and love motivated by hope, not just in them, but in men and women all over the world. A deficient faith would not be capable of that. For us in our context, we can tend at times, I think, to, to view our faith in an individualistic way. But it's important and encouraging, I think, for us to step back and see not only what God has done and is doing in us, but also what God has done and is doing in people all across the globe. Think about it with me in the context of Colossians and our present day experience. God, let's not forget, miraculously saved Paul. Here was a man who was persecuting the church, but when Jesus met him, everything changed. Evidence of that is even here in Colossians. I mean, he is praying and caring for a church that he didn't start and possibly never even met. And also, God has miraculously saved Epaphras, as well as the saints in Colossae and the nearby cities in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So that's there from, from this letter, but in our day, God has miraculously saved you and me through the Holy Spirit's working through the very same gospel that was believed and embraced by Paul, Epaphras, and the Colossians. I love how Christopher Beatham, again, he puts it, um, how he puts it, he says it this way. In Colossians 1.6, Paul informs the Colossians that the gospel was advancing across the world. When it reached Colossae, it swept up its audience in its triumphal wake as it rang out in expanding circles across the Roman Empire. Approximately 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, the gospel had created numerous communities whose members swore allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Evidence exists of churches scattered across Palestine, Cyprus, Syria, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, and Italy by this time. Nearly 2,000 years later, approximately 2.2 billion people across the globe self-identify as Christian or at least affiliated with a Christian church. That is roughly 32% of the global population. Let's be quick to praise God for this. Let's praise him for what he has done in us, in, in you, and in me, and in all believers across the globe in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel has come to us and it is bearing fruit and it is increasing just as it did for Paul, the Colossians, and Epaphras, which brings us to our last point, the messenger. Look with me at verses seven to eight. It says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul reiterates here that the Colossians learned the gospel from Epaphras. Again, he was possibly converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and he took the good news of Jesus Christ to his hometown where it was received and continues to bear fruit. Notice two things here. First, it's possible that again, there is encouragement for the Colossians. Confronted by false teaching, it could be comforting to them to hear Paul list Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ. In other words, it could be comforting for them to hear that 
what Epaphras has taught them is true and that they can, that they can trust him, especially in a situation where what they have been taught is being challenged. But also, secondly here, notice um, how the gospel is at work specifically in this man, Epaphras. Just look at what Paul says about him. He is, for, for Paul and those with him, our beloved fellow servant. He is, Paul says, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He is serving these people. It's possible there that, um, that, that, the, that the text um, should be translated, he is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And if that's the case, Epaphras is ministering to the people at Colossae uh, on behalf of Paul and those with him, which again would provide even more encouragement for the Colossians, that this man is ministering to them on behalf of the Apostle Paul, which challenges uh, the false teaching that they've been hearing. But Epaphras, beloved fellow servant, faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras has told Paul about the Colossians' love in the Spirit. It's possible that he even traveled from Colossae all the way to Rome uh, to give Paul this news, if indeed that's where Paul was when he wrote. And more than that, uh, if, if, you, if you have a Bible, and if you don't, that's okay, I'll read it. Later in Colossians, in chapter 4, Paul mentions Epaphras again. And notice what he has to say about him here. This is, Ephesians, or this is Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why or how? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. This is a man who is pouring himself out for the faith of these people. He so longs for them to stand mature in Christ, for them to be fully assured in all the will of God. He desires this for them. It's, it's uh, possible too, or at least it, 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 um, it seems in, in Philemon, in verse 23, um, there Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. It's possible that when, if, when Paul, when if, um, I'm sorry, Epaphras traveled to see Paul, that somehow he ended up in prison too. So this man is pouring himself out for these people. He's showing his love for them. He's showing his devotion to the Lord. He is demonstrating spirit-fueled love and service. Now, Sam Storms uh, uh, points out um, many of these things uh, regarding Epaphras, and then he asks these questions, and I love how he phrases this, and, and I hope this is a good final challenge for us as we, as we hear this morning. Sam Storm says, Who has been an Epaphras in your life? Have you taken steps to honor them? 
Have you thanked God for them? Have you expressed your profound gratitude to them for having sacrificed so much for your spiritual well-being? Lastly, in whose life have you been an Epaphras? If you have no answer for that question, you can start today. Why not commit yourself right now to struggling on behalf of others whom God has brought to your attention or into your life? Will you work hard so that they, by God's grace, might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God? May it be so in in all of us that we pour ourselves out like Epaphras. May we model what we see in him as he is modeling most significantly what we see in Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and the great servant who laid his life down for us. So the gospel, it bore fruit in Epaphras. The gospel bore fruit in the Colossians. The gospel bore fruit in Paul. It is increasing. And it's doing the same thing by the power of the Holy Spirit among us today. So let's praise God for his grace toward us in Christ and for his work in us and through us. And let's keep on remembering the hope that we have in the gospel and keep striving to grow in our faith and in our love. Let's do this by the power of the Holy Spirit for our good, for the good of our church and our city, for the places where we live. And let's do it for, most importantly, the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for you and for what you have done for us. You have shown immeasurable kindness to us in Jesus in saving us and bringing us uh, out of darkness into light and bringing us from death to life by the power of the gospel as your Holy Spirit uh, awoke us to, in, in faith. Thank you for giving us faith to turn away from our sin and to believe the good news of the gospel. Thank you for saving us, for reconciling us to yourself. Thank you for continuing to save us, for continuing to make us more like Jesus, to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our love. Lord, I, I pray that you would Uh, Please be about this work uh, in us now. Please continue to grow us in our faith in Christ Jesus. Grow us in our love for all the saints. Lord, may we meditate and reflect on the hope laid up for us in heaven. May we um, set our minds um, fully on the hope that is coming to us in Christ Jesus at his return. Help us to be so heavenly minded that we are of the utmost by your grace earthly good to those around us we we need you for this we we want you to do this work in us please do it for for our sake for our good make us more like jesus do it for our church do it for our city may they see the love of jesus uh, through us your people And Father, ultimately do this, please, for the great name of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.